All right. Hi, Dr. Brooks. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Samira Daswani, the host of the Patient from Hell podcast. We just renamed it fairly recently. It took me a bit of time to embrace that identity, but we're there. Uh, we are Manta Cares. We're a community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. We create tools and resources for anyone around the world experiencing cancer. We today have uh, thousands of people on our newsletter. And of course, we have this podcast. So it's incredibly um, my pleasure to have you here today because you are our first medical oncologist on this podcast. Yes, well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Before we get started, I would love uh, to hear more about how you came to be a medical oncologist. Sure. Um, so I have the, I, the story has to start with the fact that my father was an oncologist, a medical oncologist. So I'm not the first oncologist in my family. Um, and so obviously I had that example growing up. Um, and when I when I um, was deciding to go to medical school, I, I didn't didn't go with the intention of sort of following the exact career path, you know, and specials, specialty of my father. But um, but uh, when I got into medical school and started seeing patients in, in the clinical rotations, I realized that I really did enjoy um, working with cancer patients. Um, and it was something about the, 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 the relationships, the, the physician and, and patient relationships. And, and it, it is, it's also an interesting field, a scientifically interesting field. So it, it was those two things. But I think mostly it was the fact that I just enjoyed working with cancer patients. It seemed like a high stakes uh, relationship. And it, and it was a I wanted, it seemed like if I was going to go into medicine, I wanted to be involved in those kinds of high stakes relationships um, to help, to help patients with cancer. Can I ask you a follow-up there? What, what about the cancer patient is different than other patients? Sure. So I think, um, you know, some patients in, when you're a medical, when you're a medical student, which is when you're making these decisions, um, you, you know, some of the patients, you, it feels very episodic. It feels like you're, you're meeting someone and you'll never see them again. And, and some people like that. They like not, you know, not necessarily having a longitudinal relationship with a patient. They like, I'm going to see the patient and the patient's, you know, I'm going to provide help. And, and then that, that'll be the end of my relationship with, with the patient. I'll, I'll see each patient in sequence and, and have a one-time uh, relationship with those patients. Um, whereas I, I knew that I wanted to do something more longitudinal. I wanted to see, I wanted to have those longitudinal relationships with patients. And then, you know, Obviously, primary care has a very longitudinal relationship with patients, um, but in primary care, I think the, you know, often it doesn't feel as much of a high stakes situation, um, and and that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's it just I was attracted to, um, to those those more high stakes situations, I, I suppose. I see. So it was all about the patient relationship. That's incredible. I I love hearing that. And how did you end up in GI? So that was happenstance. Um, you know, I did my fellowship um, at the, I did my residency in internal medicine at University of Colorado School of Medicine. Um, and then I, I started a fellowship in medical oncology um, at uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Center. Um, and when I got to Dana-Farber, uh, my mentors, um, my research mentors um, were in GI oncology and, and uh, Dr. Deb Schrag, who's now at, uh, at Sloan Kettering, um, was, was, my, was my primary research mentor. She was a GI oncologist. And I realized um, that as I was seeing patients in GI oncology that, you know, it was, an, it was a great specialty for me. Um, I got to see men and women. Um, so, you know, if you're a breast oncologist, you see all women and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but I wanted to see a mix of men and women and I wanted to see variety and, and, you know, my father is a general oncologist, so he sees patients with leukemia and breast cancer and lung cancer and prostate cancer. So I'm a I'm a GI medical oncologist. I'm not totally. I'm, I'm I see patients with colon cancer and breast cancer and liver cancer. So I see a range of conditions, but not quite as wide as a general medical oncologist does. So I I, I went into it because of you know sort of just, that's just how it happened in my training. Um, but I I. I, I like the variety. Um, I like having a mix of different kinds of patients. So the one thing that I think would be helpful for our listenership to understand is it's something that you mentioned early. There's the patient relationship, and then there's the academic research side of it, and the scientific underpinning, the constant change in cancer care, the cancer research, and how it sort of 
comes back to influence patient care. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about that from your lens, because you've done fellowships and I know you do research on the side as well. So how does that play out in your in your life? Yes. So, um, you know, oncology is a field that is changing as fast as any other field in medicine. Um, and, and, you know, oncology is a relatively young field compared to other, other medical specialties. Um, you know, before the 1960s, uh, there were really very few, if any, successful cancer, cancer therapies. Um, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, there started to be more effective cancer treatments. Um, oncologists, you know, oncology became basically kind of became a common specialty over that time. And there, and so uh, over that time, treatments were evolving. And the way that they evolved is through, re through research, patient, you know, patient-oriented research. So there was a lot of basic science going on. Um, I'm not a basic scientist. I, I did I did some basic science in, in my university and, and um, it wasn't, wasn't my strength. Um, but I learned that I think I'm actually pretty, pretty good at um, sort of more um, epidemiologic thinking um, and and patient and thinking about um, patient orient you know how patients interact with with their with their doctors and and how the treatments how they're affected by the treatments um, and so yes so, you know my practice is affected by research because one one day um, a drug will be a drug or a treatment approach will be in development and we'll get sometimes we get a chance to participate in those in those research studies by enrolling patients in those studies. Um, and then the next day, those drugs, you know, we learn about the results of those studies. Some of them are successful. Some of them are not successful. Um, but we're always, you know, I'm always excited. And I think most of my colleagues are excited when we we learn, okay, here's a better way. Here's something that we can be doing better. Um, or here's something that we've been doing all along that is not actually that we shouldn't be doing any longer. Um, so, you know, learning, being in a field that's evolving, that's for me is also fun. Um, it's, it's especially fun when it means that um, we can do better in taking care of patients. So Dr. Brooks, one of the things that uh, we've had now, I think a couple of individuals on this podcast come and talk to us about is how individuals, and I mean individuals, caregivers and patients can stay abreast with the changes. And one of the things that I know that a number of individuals struggle with is they don't come from scientific backgrounds. And what's been happening is patients, especially in the more um, sort of rarer cancer types, uh, et cetera, they don't know how to necessarily navigate the scientific side of it. And I'm wondering if you've seen tools and resources that you might be able to point patients or caregivers to saying that, hey, this is how I keep, a, keep up to date with all of the research coming out. This is what you may want to watch. Is there anything like that that you might be able to share with us? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that some of the you know, I I go on Twitter, um, and and I see and I run into patients in, on Twitter sometimes, um, and that you know sometimes um, can be a, a pretty interesting space um, to ask questions and, and follow people who are. So if you're a patient who has a rare disease, there there are um, there are specialists in your disease probably who are on Twitter and might be tweeting about your. Um, I think most you know. Twitter is not is a public forum, so it's not a good place for asking highly you know individual questions about you know pri private medical information. Um, but you know there are some interest you know asking more general questions about you know what is a good treatment for this condition, um, or 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 looking at looking at conversations about those questions, which which I you know I I'm always interested because there are always these issues that sort of fall between the lines. So as a as a physician, you know, obviously I'm relying, I'm not relying on Twitter to teach me how to practice, but sometimes there are questions where, where you're trying to figure out what are other people doing? Um, it, there's no right answer to a question, but, but you're trying to learn how, how, how do I, how do I do, do this thing that's new to all of us? Um, and we kind of learn from each other. So it's, so there's a network effect there. Um, I've also seen that you know, Twitter, Twitter, and other online spaces can be good spaces for patients patients to meet each other. And there are there are patient advocates who, um, and there are organizations um, where where patients sort of meet each other um, and can really provide a lot of support to each other. So I've I've certainly seen that in in you know there's some there's something for colon cancer patients called Colon Town. 
Um, and it's that's an online community that I know that um, a lot of colon cancer patients and, and rectal cancer patients have really found a lot of good information through Colon Town. Um, and I, I don't I don't I don't have you know any significant involvement myself in that, but but what I've seen from that organization has been good. Um, and I think there are other similar online communities, which you know. So as long as you're going to an online community where um, where there are good is is some some leadership that you know that is steering that community in a in a direction you know, that's towards towards things that are you know scientifically valid. Uh, obviously, you know, not everything not everything that people do is based in science, but but um, I think as an oncologist, we tend to focus on that science-based part of the, you know, part of the treatment uh, arena. So there, I, I definitely would not have expected you to say Twitter. <laughs> that was amazing. I think that was one of my honestly recent learnings at ASCO. I You should not be on Twitter. I, I just never had uh, the desire to, I guess, but I think that was my biggest learning from ASCO. It sounds kind of wild because ASCO does a lot of learnings, but my biggest learning from ASCO was Twitter is where a lot of the conversations happen. And I am so glad that you just mentioned that because I don't know if that's obvious to the patient. I think there are some patients on there, but I am not, I'm surprised. Yeah, I think it's harder. It may be harder for people to sort of figure out where to start and figure out um, how to get in, get into those conversations or find those conversations. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if it's the, how easy it is for patients to use it that way. Um, but it's it, but it is interesting because I certainly do run into patients there, um, and and I certainly have have patients who not my own patients but patients who follow me because 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 uh, they're interested in something I've said. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, all right, that that's going to be one of our our key takeaways from today. I think. Uh, I, speaking of ASCO, I actually wanted to give, if you're okay with it, a small uh, small story about how we met. Sure. And it it was at ASCO. Um, so ASCO, for the benefit of our listeners, is one of the largest uh, organizations in oncology and largest influences in oncology. It brings together the global community of scientists, medical oncologists, uh, patient advocates, life science companies, pharma companies, et cetera, under the same sort of umbrella. And this year, I bumped into Dr. Brooks at the patient advocacy reception. And we ended up having, I, want to, I think it was for an hour of a conversation and a dialogue. And it was all about, I think, tumor boards. Do I remember that right? Yes, that was one of the main things that we talked about. I do remember that. And I was wondering, so I was reflecting on that conversation and I feel as I walked away with such a different lens on tumor boards, especially from the lens of a medical oncologist, which I don't think I fully appreciated prior to that conversation. And I was wondering if you'd be open to telling um, our listeners about what is a tumor board, why are they important, how do they unfold, and just diving into that one. Sure. So tumor board, which is has different names, but it is a it's a it's something that happened you know, that most um, can, interdisciplinary cancer programs have. Um, so I practice at the Dartmouth Cancer Center in in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Um, which is an which is an um, you know a university-based hospital system, but it, it's a, it's a relatively rural you, you, um, university-based health system in in the United States, um, and we have a, our a tumor board for and we have we have many tumor boards um, in our cancer center because we are a fairly large cancer center for our area, and each tumor board is focused on a, um, a specific disease type. Um, so I attend the, the the tumor board that I attend is focused on um, GI oncology. Um, and what it is, is it's a meeting that happens once a week. Um, you know, other tumor boards might happen once a month or once every couple of weeks. Um, we have enough volume, high enough volume of cases um, that we, we meet every week. Um, and the attendees of that meeting are medical oncologists. Um, so there's, you know, four medical oncologists who attend this tumor board. Um, there's three colorectal surgeons, uh, two radiation oncologists, um, there's at least one um, diagnostic radiologist and usually one or two interventional radiologists. Um, and then there's the pathologists. Um, and often there's also trainees, um, fellows, or, or other people who are doing a residency or fellowship. I mean, so, and we sit in the old days, we, we all sat together in a room and we, there was a projection screen and, and um, you know, we discuss 
a dozen cases over the course of an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and then we project images, you know, the CT images, and we project the pathology up on the on the screen. These days, a lot of it now happens um, on uh, virtual meeting spaces. Although I, we 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 still do go in person. There's actually, I think, real value to to going to it in person, um, where you can actually see your see the. You know these people who you share patients with, but who you, you might not actually see them personally because we practice in different locations in the hospital. So it's the one time a week when we really convene, we get together, um, and um, you know I nothing I do, nothing I'm doing in the care of a patient is happening in a vacuum. Or you, very rarely is that the case. Usually, patients, you know, there's questions about surgical treatments. There's questions about. Um, the, the, the radiology or the pathology, there's questions about uh, radiation therapy or other interventional treatments. And so when um, so the cases that we bring to tumor board are cases where we have questions. Um, and it might be a patient with a new diagnosis of cancer, or it might be a patient who I've been taking care of for years, but the situation has changed. There's a new question that I want to address with the tumor board. Um, you know, I could just send the patient to another specialist, but that specialist, you know, that that doesn't have the same context as three or four specialists sitting in a room talking about a shared patient or a potentially shared patient. Um, so that so it's it's um you know part of what we talked about, Samira, was you know how this is really valuable time. Um, this one hour, um, one hour and fifteen minutes a week, you have um, maybe 15, 15 doctors in a room um, or in a virtual room, and um, and it, that's hard to accomplish. It's hard to get 15 people in a room. Um, and so, so the time, if you, you know, if, obviously we don't, there's no, there, there, we don't bill, you know, there's no, the patients aren't, there's no, there's no revenue that is, is being generated during that time. Because of course, medicine's both is a, is a business and, and that's time that's, that, that's not um, actually spent um, seeing patients or doing things that actually generate any revenue for the hospital. Um, but it, it's critical to planning, planning excellent, care plans for patients. So I think there are so many, so many sort of threads in there that I'm hoping we can sort of start to unpack a little bit. I think for the first one though, I think it's about the patient care, right? So it's 12 cases, hour, hour and 15, so roughly three to four minutes per case. Um, my first, my uh, first uh, question there is, is it really uh, based on whether there's a question that needs to be answered or is it also an update? So the reason I ask that is we had uh, Patrick Delaney, the exec director of the NCCN Foundation, and we spent the majority of that podcast talking about guidelines. And the fact that NCCN has these guidelines of care, and they are largely used globally. So I believe they have 1.3 million oncologists across the world looking at NCCN guidelines and practicing according to the guidelines. And very often patients don't even know what the guidelines are. So that episode was all about guidelines. So you have the guidelines upon which a lot of oncology practice is being done. Then we sort of have this tumor board. So how do those two things work in conjunction with, you, with each other? Sure. So the, so the NCCN guidelines are, um, you know, it, it is a very influential, those are in, very influential documents, basically. They're basically documents um that that you know document what what these panels think is high high quality care they're very they're not proscriptive they, they they don't give you only one one and only one approach to doing things and then there's lots of things that fall between the, the, there's lots of areas that are highly subjective in patient care it's also true i mean that the, that the ncsan guidelines are sort of they're written. They're written with a U.S. They're written by a U.S. organization, and so they refer to drugs that are approved in the United States, and and they refer to treatments that are you know sometimes available in the United States but might not be available elsewhere. Um, so they they definitely have a sort of United States slant to them. Um, but I, I think they're they're evidence based, and these days you know the the so much of the research is global. Um, you know, in terms of what how does how does um tumor board almost addresses the um, issues that where the guidelines don't aren't detailed enough or or where more subjective determination is required because yeah if if you know when we're talking about um i can follow the guidelines i don't necessarily need other people's help to follow 
to, to follow the guidelines. And, you know, 95% of the time, the things, or 99% of the time, most of the things that I do are consistent with the NCCN guidelines. Every once in a while, you know, there's a, a, a unique situation or, a, you know, where, where the guidelines may not, you know, that's, a, I think a, a good physician can identify when do the guidelines apply and when maybe do they not apply and when should I do something that's a little bit different. 99, 95 to 99% of the time, you should probably be following the guidelines. Um, but in the tumor board, we're talking about, sometimes the, the guidelines say, consider liver-directed therapy. So a patient who has colon cancer, they have three liver metastases, um, and um, it may be it may be feasible to offer that patient a treatment that actually tries to address those, those three liver metastases. Um, I can give them chemotherapy. Uh, an interventional radiologist can do an ablation of those liver metastases. A surgeon can remove the primary colon tumor. Um, but we, And then maybe the patient also has uh, heart failure or some other condition that, that makes this you know, complicated. So we, so we have to get in a room the guidelines talk about generic situations. Now we're getting into a room and we're talking about a specific situation. Maybe one of the tumors is close to the, the, the inferior vena cava, and that's going to complicate decision-making about, you know, whether or not um, surgery or ablation or other treatments are, are, you know, are feasible. So really the, the guidelines are, are great. And I thought, you know, I try to follow them whenever, you know, the great majority of the time. And then when, when we're talking about implementing a specific plan in a specific patient, then there's all these things that come up that are not addressed in the guidelines. And, um, and so we're, we're, we're making indi doing individualized decision-making. So I'm super, I, I love the case study you just brought up because I feel as if that really makes it concrete in terms of how that can play out and where the guidelines sort of almost end and where the sort of personalization can begin. So in the case that you just spoke about, it sounds like you could have multiple ways of addressing those liver mets. And now you've taken that to tumor board, but you have about four minutes, four or five minutes, maybe if it's really complicated, I'm guessing a couple more minutes in there, but how does that play out? Because when you were describing the tumor board, there are a lot of people in the room that are there. So is it a presentation? Is it a dialogue? Like, can you yeah, give so, us a little so bit more? Sure. So if in, in that example, you know, I, I usually the presentation, I'm, if I'm the one who brings the case to the tumor board, I'll, I'll present the patient. I'll say, this is a 75 year old man with metastatic colon cancer. Um, and he's in generally good health or he has some other condition. And then let's look at the, can we, you know, and we're, and the question, it, I, the question I have is about whether, you know, treatment of these liver metastases and, and let, can we review the imaging and then the radiologist will project the the C, usually a CT scan. Um, so I've just spent I don't know twenty or thirty seconds introducing the case. Then we spend two, a minute or two minutes, or it depends on how complicated the imaging is, reviewing the images. So there's some prep that actually happens in advance. The radiologist mm -hmm. is usually reviewed, you know, has done some preliminary review, so so he or she knows you know where to go in the in the imaging, um, and um, and that's you know. We can all, without tumor, imaging is one of the great things that comes with the tumor board is that I can, um, I can pull up, you know, in my health system, I can pull up anybody's scan at any time, but I don't have a radiologist next to me. I can read their report, but the report, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words and the report doesn't describe everything. Um, and then sometimes I know things that the radiologist doesn't know. So when we're talking, when we're in the same place at the same time, we can figure stuff out that we, we, that the radiologist doesn't know when they write their report. So, um, so then we're reviewing the images together. Um, and then, um, you know, then maybe the interventional radiologist says, yeah, I could ablate those tumors or no, you know, that one, there's something that you wouldn't know, but that one's not going to be amenable to an, to an ablation. So a surge. So, so the question is really about either radiation or surgery. And then the, the radiation oncologist is there and says, I think we could do certain, I think we could do radiation, but, you know, but there are other, you know, there might be other considerations. And so, so having the, you know, being able to do this kind of collaborative discussion in real time, um, you know, it's one of those things where if you tried to do this over email or, or me making five different individual phone calls, I mean, you could, it's just not going to happen because there, there just isn't time. And, you know, it's bringing everybody, giving the right people together at the same time uh, enables, 
rapid assessment and decision making, um, but it is rapid, and that's that's what something that we talked about. You know, at, at, when when we met was that um, these are pretty rapid fire, and there's not a lot of, you know, I think we one of the things we talked about is well, where do the patient's preferences come into this? Um, why is, why isn't the patient there? And you're not the first person to bring that up. Um, and there's been some. I've seen some, uh, I think, some perspective pieces about, you know, we need to bring the patients into these tumor boards. And I had, you know, I think I told you, I'm not sure how that would work. I'm not sure how that would fly um, because of, I don't, there's no way we could do the number of cases that we do. Um, and so I, it would be a different thing. And so could we, could we still accomplish, how, how would we accomplish all these different objectives? I, I I'm so glad you went there because that's exactly where I was going to go next, which is, I think in my case, I, I knew what a tumor board was. I knew my case was being taken to tumor board after surgery because I had achieved pathological complete response post chemo and surgery and was at that decision point where they wanted me to start on an ovarian suppressor. And I, which is standard of care. It's what the guidelines recommend, first line treatment. It's ovarian suppressor plus an aromatase inhibitor. And I refused to do it because I had really, really bad side effects. And they wanted me to be on it for at least five to 10 years. And I am looking at that and thinking of my quality of life and could not resolve it. I, I just could not resolve it. And to think about having such bad joint pain that you can't sit up and stand when you're 31 years old is for me inconceivable. So I pushed back. And my oncologist, and we're really good friends, my oncologist was like, I'm going to take this to tumor board. But I hit a point where I was like, look, I want to be there to present my case. I, it's my case. I'm the one pushing back. I'm the one asking for not following guidelines. I'd, I didn't want any tamoxifen. I was like, I don't want tamoxifen. I don't want ovarian suppression. I'd rather do this other alternative thing not alternative in the sense of alternative medicine in the realm of Western medicine, wanted a different kind of line of treatment. And it really upset me that I wasn't allowed to go to tumor board because I felt like I understood my case. I had looked at the science research. I had looked at all the data. I sort of had a sense of where the data sort of fell short because early stage breast cancer is very common, sadly, but early stage breast cancer in young women is still not that common. And therefore, the data has limitations on it. If you look at these studies where they present the outcomes, it, there's, there's limitations on it. And therefore, I think to your previous point, your guidelines are fairly generalized. And I don't think they always apply to all cases. So I really want to go to tumor board. And I was not happy when I was not allowed. <laughs> so and so I, you know, um... What you are asking for to me, one is perfectly reasonable and, and makes and not only, I mean, who am I to, to say that something is or isn't reasonable, but but to, to me, that, that makes total sense. Um, two, um, it's not, in my view, it's not what tumor board is for. I mean, it, in my view, tumor board is for um, addressing what are the possible, you know, what are the feasible treatment options? Um, and what you're, what you're talking about is sounds to me more like how do we individualize a treatment for, for a patient? Um, and, and that, you know, so if a, I can make any recommendation to a patient and, and that patient can then refuse, they can decline. Um, maybe decline is a nicer word. Um, and, and I am, I'm acting as an agent of the patient. I, I'm trying to give them what I think is good advice that will serve, that will best serve what I, what I understand to be their their objectives and you most in most people the objective is I don't want my cancer if they if if their cancer is in remission the objective is to prevent it from coming back if the cancer is not in remission which many of my patients have advanced cancer so they they have active cancer then their objective usually is to live as long as possible with an acceptable quality of life and I don't get to decide to define what an acceptable quality of life is and in your case Maybe there are trade-offs uh, in terms of, you know, this treatment is the best treatment to prevent a recurrence, but it comes with this side effect. There's obviously trade-offs there. Not everybody's going to accept one person's trade-off, their acceptable 
trade-off is not, uh, is not the same as another person. So that, so in my view, that's part of my job as, as somebody's agent is to figure, help them figure out, okay, what are the, if you don't, if, if you, if the sort of standard treatment, if you're, if you have a reason that you're, that that's not okay with you, for you, then we got to come figure out what are the other options. So, so you could go to tumor board to say the patient declines this treatment, help me figure out the other options because that's, that, that, that makes more sense. It's not, I've told the patient to, this is not how I would approach it. I, I've recommended X and the tumor board is going to side with me or side with the patient. That's, that doesn't, that's not how I would see the scenario. I am super glad you, you sort of uh, put more layers in there because I think that was also one of the reason one of the ahas I had from our conversation at ASCO, which is the aha of at what point does tumor board really step in? What point should they step in? And I think the other one was institution by institution variation. Because I would imagine that tumor board at where you practice and tumor board where I was getting care may not be playing out the same way. And yes. I imagine that the dynamics in the room are different as well in terms of who's in the room, how are they in the room, who's running the meeting. It reminds me of like, I, I work in life sciences, my, my day jobs in, in life sciences. And even in life sciences, depending on what the topic is at, at hand and what is playing out in the room when you have 15, 16 people, Sometimes it's just the individuals in the room that drive the dynamic and kind of how that discussion unfolds. Well, I think that, you know, the, the tumor board is a really interesting sociological phenomenon is what you're pointing out. And I, I think it's true. I think like, um, you know, the way that a cancer center operates, the culture of a, of a hospital or of a group of doctors, um, you know, we, we like to think that, okay, we have a team, our team there's, our team has many layers. I have a smaller team of medical oncologists. We have a wider team that includes surgeons and radiation oncologists and radiologists. And, and um, I, I like to think that, you know, we we have a, that we have a good team and, and um, I, I want to be part of, you know, that's, I, I, I don't want to be part of a team that I don't think is great. Um, I want to be part of a team that I think is great. Um, I, I don't think that cancer care is a, is an individual you know, it's not, you can't do it as an individual. You can only do it in teams or, or it's very challenging to do it as an individual. So, and I think that it's true that the, you know, those meetings really set a culture. They, and um, you can, if you can establish a culture that is good or a culture that is bad, we talk about patient preferences in our tumor board all the time. Um, and if, you know, so if I try to, I try to say this patient wants, you know, this patient has told me that she, she is trying to avoid chemotherapy, or this patient has told me that, um, that avoiding toxicity is very important to her um, because she knows that she has a, a, a disease that's not, a cancer that's not going to be cured. She knows that she's eventually going to die from this cancer, and she, she would rather avoid toxicity and live a little shorter than, than have to deal with high, high levels of toxicity. So I try to, it's my job to learn those preferences and bring them to the tumor board when we're when we're sort of figuring out the options. So there are, there are sort of two threads I was hoping that we can like keep pulling on. I think one of them, and I may give a bit of context here for our listeners. So episode four, we spend about 25 minutes talking about how from a patient's lens and a caregiver's lens, decision-making in oncology kind of feels like an infinite game. And it feel, feels like this constant, um, and I don't think this is universally applicable across all cases, of course, but in cases where you have sort of different modalities of treatment, it goes on for a while. And by a while, I mean at least a couple of months, if not years, it feels like this constant, you're always at a decision point with new information. And it is high stakes. It goes back to how you opened our discussion today. It is high stakes. It's the trade-off between my life versus quality of life, my health span and my lifespan. It's this constant kind of struggle. And my lens is different than my caregiver's lens and my family's lens, and they may want different things than I want. So it feels like this infinite game. And we were going back and forth on, is it a chess game or is it an infinite game? Is it finite or is it infinite? Do you, where does it stop and what's the outcome? Is there a win and a loss or is, does it just keep going? And when you were talking about as an oncologist, this notion of you have a team and you have this interdisciplinary team and the objectives and the goals of that team are being influenced heavily by the patient preferences. It's something that we haven't previously unpacked on this podcast before. 
And I'm wondering if there's a way that we can think about the game analogy, because the game analogy actually came from my surgeon. It was at the point where we were making the call on should we do a lumpectomy, a mastectomy? How do we think about it? What are the trade-offs? Are we doing breast conservation surgery? Are we doing a more radical approach? And that's when he was like, look, Samira, cancer is like, like playing chess. It's one of the reasons I keep doing what I do because it allows me to have intellectual sort of stimulation, which I, I totally understand. I, I'm the same way, not an oncologist or a surgeon, but you know, intellectual stimulation, I get it. But at the same time, it's that, that notion that you're playing this, um, this game with cancer. And I personally think it's very compelling because it allowed me distance from my cancer treatment to think of it that way. But I was wondering how you think of that versus the team concept. Is it a team playing a game together? So is it more like a sport? Well, because so cancer, treating patients with cancer is my work. Um, and, and, um, and so I, and it's, and I have many, obviously many patients. Um, and so I realized that my patients are more invest, you know, my patients have a greater investment in their, in their life than I do. That's just, that's just inescapable. Right. So, um, now obviously I want, I'm trying to help every one of my patients, but I also have to go home at the end of the day and, um, and be, be with my family, um, because that's, that's important too. So yes. So oncology, you know, I, it is, I, what part of what makes it fun, you know, so I, I want my work to be fun. I think if, if my work is fun, then I'm, I do a better job for my patients. Um, and the team, I do like working in teams. I think most people, many people, most people do. Um, and so recognizing that we work in a team and the more that we support each other and the more that we share common goals. And, and I think there has been some research on teams and, and the most effective teams share a common goal. They, they share a common understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. And I think what our team, you know, especially our, you know, we have these concentric, we have teams that are, that get bigger in concentric circles. You know, our smallest teams include the people that I work most closely with, which are nurse practitioners, advanced um, physician assistants, um, other, other um, GI medical oncologists. There's a team of, of four of us who are in GI medical oncology here. We have, you know, other specialists and other types of cancers around us. So, you know, I think we have the culture coming at back to that question of culture, you know, is that patient preferences is, is we are not, um, we are not imposing treatments onto people. People, we are trying to give people treatments that they want. Um, and the way that we do that is, is by learning what they want. Um, and also helping even sometimes we don't understand what patients tell us that they want. We, we want to tell them, you say you want this, but I've seen other patients go through what you're going through. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure. Let, let me give you some additional information about what you're going through and where, where this expressed preference yeah. might lead you, because we, we do have that benefit of seeing people go through illness. So I think I'm, I'm not sure if I answered the question you originally opened with, but. No, I, I like that perspective a lot because one of the other analogies that is only in, and I don't actually think we've shared it on this podcast yet is I've been thinking about the cancer experience a lot recently. And one of the sort of insights is cancer as a patient and a caregiver, navigating cancer is analogous to going on a very, very long hike without a trail map. So you don't actually know when the next decision point is gonna be. You don't know if you're going uphill or downhill. And to your point, you don't know if after walking uphill, you're so exhausted that you're gonna make a different decision on which path you take. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to foresee that. I think that's absolutely, yeah, I think that, so um, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, the the idea that you can make a decision today that's going to specify every step along the way for the, for the next year, um, for most of my patients, that's just not realistic. Um, you know, we're going to make decisions today to the best of our ability. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to help you make decisions and we're going to make a decision together about what the, what kind of care plan we're going to use. But going forward, tomorrow, it could change tomorrow. It certainly could change in two or three months. Um, and and we have to recognize that. Yeah. I think that's been a, a more and more of a realization for me because the more I hear patients talk about their experiences, the more 
I realized that the path they end up taking is determined by a sequence of decisions, but you you just can't foresee it that far out. And grappling with that uncertainty up front is, I think, something that caregivers and patients really struggle with. I, I mean, I, I know I struggled with it too. I, I wanted a plan. I'm a planner. I want my plan. <laughs> I don't want my plan to change, but I don't think that's the reality of what happens. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's tough for me is understanding, okay, how much do I, tr- how, what do I do in terms of, do I try to prepare my patients for every eventuality? I mean, that's impossible. Um, and do I want, do I even want to, my patient to to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what if, what if things go bad and we get to this point? Well, we can, you know, on the one hand, we can just, we can deal with that. If we get that, no, we don't want to go there, but if we go there, we'll have to deal with it when we get there. Is it product, to what extent is it productive to um, spend a lot of time preparing for an outcome that none of us are hoping for? Um, I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's not, it is, you know, I, I always, I always, I think it's very important for me to be truthful with my patients and tell them, you know, my goal is to, what is the, what are the goals of the treatment? The goal of the treatment is, is to help you live longer and feel better, but maybe not to cure you. And, and if, if, if I don't expect the patient to be cured of their cancer, I'll tell them that the treatment we're giving is, is not, is, I don't expect that it's going to cure you. And other doctors might say, it's not going to cure you. And I say, I don't expect that it's going to cure you because, because what, you know, there are sometimes things that are surprising happen. Um, and, and then there's, you know, I think there are many oncologists and myself included who believe that, um, it's not our job to tell, to tell people what, what the future holds. Cause we don't know, we don't know what the future holds. I, I I'm, um, I think you, I think maybe you complain, you, the, the crystal ball analogy. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. You did. You, you, you said, well, yeah, you know that, but, um, <laughs> people, people ask us, well, what, what's, what's going to happen? Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I know what might happen. I know what is likely to happen. Um, I, I don't know what will happen. Yeah. And I think, I think what you just said is I think one of the hardest parts of being a patient, because I think a lot of caregivers and patients don't have the tools to understand the data here, right? Because the data exists, right? For the most part, not, not always, but we, we do know what the probability, probabilistic answers are, but they are probabilistic. Right. And I think patients, I think people in general, you know, that's people buy, why do people buy lottery tickets? You know, if we all, if we were all probabilistic thinkers, we wouldn't buy lottery tickets for the most part, but lots of people do buy lottery tickets. So he, human beings are not in their lives probabilistic. Um, and yet the data that we have tell us probabilistically what's likely to happen, what's unlikely to happen, but they're not determined. We don't know deterministically what will happen. That's exactly right. Um, there's one more thread that I think we started on, but I never picked it up, which was, and this goes back to tumor boards and the fact that you can't charge and bill for it. Because I thought that was one of the phenomenal insights that I remember from our previous conversation that I think I, I, I definitely did not realize it. And I think it's actually really important for us to unpack that one, because I think if the counterfactual there were true, I think how tumor boards might run would be very different. Yes. I mean, so I guess the point that I, the reason why I even brought that up is not, not, you know, I don't expect people to, to be that interested in what, what it is or isn't um, billable time, but it, but it is obviously how we treat, you know, in any place of work, you, you have a, I have a fixed amount of time. Um, my employer expects me to see a fixed amount of patients. You know, if you asked me to design my work life, maybe I would say um, I'm only going to see I'm going to see fewer patients. I'm going to spend more time on each patient. Um, but I, but um, if that were true, then there'd be patients who never get in the door and would never get treat, treated. So there's always this um, this tension between spending more time with the patient who's in front of you or um, or get moving on to another patient who also needs help. Um, and then the, the way that the hospital triages that is by the way that they, you know, the way that the healthcare system triages these problems is they pay you to, to see patients and they, and they don't pay you to necessarily to spend time at tour board. Um, and so as a, you know, so I, I have all these incentives, just like anybody else, you know, when you, when I go to work, I have incentives and um, I, I try to pay attention to those incentives because, um, because it makes, 
makes my life a lot easier if I understand what I'm being paid to do and what I'm not being paid to do. I mean, obviously taking care of, fundamentally what I'm being paid to do is take care of patients with cancer. Um, and so, and, and the tumor board is essential to, to doing that fundamental thing, even though I'm not, you know, none of the people who are, you know, the hospital's not generating any revenue while we're sitting there doing that. But, but, um, but we're, we're doing the fundamental job of develop, making plans to care for patients. Thank you for covering that. I, I think the whole topic of how care is paid for is something that I am personally very committed to talking about on this podcast because I don't think patients understand it. And I think it's, there are, there are big macro things that maybe patients don't need to really understand, but then there are very practical things that I do think patients need to understand, which is small things like prior authorization. Yes, if a yeah. patient and caregiver just ask for prior authorization, that alone, I think, would make a dent on their incredibly large financial bills. And, and this is all U.S. context, right? Not, I mean, Ex-U.S. is very different, but I think there are things like that that over the course of our uh, work at Mantacare is that I really want to provide tools and resources around because I don't think those exist today. Yeah, the, the idea of financial toxicity has, you know, there's there was um, you know this term that was sort of has been created in the United States. Um, and, you know, the idea is that you can have toxicity from a chemotherapy, but you can also have toxicity from these the high costs of being a patient. And, um, and yes, there's a lot of opacity in the system to, you know, what what kinds of things do patients have to pay for? And the truth is, your doctors don't know either. <laughs> and, oh, <I> know. <laughs> it's very opaque to it's very opaque to me. Um, what is my patient going to have to pay for? And it differs from one patient in the United States. It differs from one patient to the next. So I may figure out what this what this patient is likely to have to pay for out of their own pocket. And it's but it's not the same for the next patient. And so it's hard for me to then act as the patient's agent. You know, I want to be the patient's agent, but I don't have any. Um, I don't have clarity on, and, and the patient also doesn't have clarity because you're not paying at the point of care. You're paying months later after everything's already happened. I, I, <laughs> I am so glad you just said what you did because I, I can tell you in my case, I actually didn't denied my first couple of rounds of, of imaging. So I found the mass end of December. It was December 17th or 18th. Uh, got an ultrasound. They wanted to repeat the ultrasound. So they repeated the ultrasound. At the ultrasound, they're like, well, we need to do a biopsy right now. And it was December 20th. I knew my insurance was changing. I was at the end of the year. I had I asked the, um, the doctor and I was like, hey, how much will it cost me? And of course, there was no answer. And I was like, can't we call up someone and ask? And can you not get me a prior authorization for it? Because I'm sitting there. I'm literally sitting there, bare chested, arm above my head. She has her biopsy up. And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. Have you gotten prior authorization? And the answer is, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, no, 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 pause, <laughs> time out. Um, and I think the question I asked her, I was like, will I die in the next 10 days? And she goes, not likely. I was like, okay, we're not doing this right now. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible though. It's the fact that you're sitting there. And had I not known that, I am certain I would have gotten a multi-thousand dollar bill. And then when the clock reset on Jan 1, I would have gotten more bills because now I, of course, you have to repeat imaging, right? One, one imaging is not going to get it there. And I'm sure if it came back positive and it's exactly what happened, right? That, that sort of cascaded into a whole bunch of other tests that had to happen. But it's the fact that you're sitting there and you need to think about these things. It's incredible to me. But yeah, and many of, many of us are trying I mean, we keep, I keep as my goal. The number one thing is just to figure, you know, my one number one goal is to address the problem. But I, but yeah, you're such, and, and for many of my patients, that's the right thing. But there might be situations where the best thing to do is to say, let's stop. Um, and, but um, for instance, Medicare in the United States is Medicare is the, you know, the public, you know, the, the national insurance program for people 65 and older. Medicare is great. great. Medicare pays, you know, Medicare generally pays, Pays, covers people's treatment very well, um, but um, but they, they still have out-of-pocket costs even even there. But so so I know the rules of Medicare because it's one it's it's easier to it's easier to figure out. So most of the most of the time, 
I think the thing to do is to take care of the person. And, and, but there are, you're right. There are circumstances where, um, you know, pressing pause is sometimes is the right thing to do. And sometimes it's not, and, and it's hard to figure that out. I think it's really hard. And in that moment, I had no idea if I made the worst decision of my life or the best one. I had no idea. It was pure instinct, right? I, I it was my first scam. And this so is why yeah, uh, these, these high deductible health plans that we have in the United States really don't work for a lot of people. If the, if the deductible is so high that um, it's catastrophic for, for a person um, or, or major, you know, causes major tr- uh, problems, then yeah, then, then, then we, it's crazy that people are making decisions based on a deductible, which I think is basically what, what the situation yeah, you're in. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because I hadn't had any care that year. So that's exactly right. And my my clock was resetting, right? So, whereas if you'd already had a bunch of care, then you'd say, backload, backload, backload it all in. Yeah, correct, exactly. So it's, uh, I think the patient journey and the cancer care giver journey are really complicated, which is partly why we're on this mission. It's partly why I I want us to be able to give tools and resources that are practical for patients and caregivers. Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful that you took out the time to spend time talking about tumor boards, explaining what they are, sort of highlighting the dynamics there, talking about how you and your team of individuals working together in concentric circles is behind that patient and caregiver, and that the goals are really being set heavily by the patient preferences about how they want to live their life and make the trade-offs they need to make make the trade-offs on. Um, I love that we highlighted kind of the dynamics of the financial system in the U.S. and how it influences care decisions, how grappling um, time for a clinician is really important because I think patients honestly sometimes forget that you have a life too and you yourself need to keep work-life balance in mind and keep yourself and your family happy. So I I really appreciate you helping us sort of uh, pull this apart and see the different perspectives here. Yeah, no, thank you. And that it was, it's, it's always fun to, to, I think it's helpful and fun to, to sort of realize that what the part of the perspective that I'm missing too. So, so it's, it's, it's a fun conversation. Thank you. This podcast show notes and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.